0: Oh, We're with Matthew 4, Matthew 4 this morning, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week, uh, this kind of a little introductory section. Of course, Matthew's kind of been introducing Jesus all along. He introduced him with a, a big theme about how he fulfilled the Old Testament in his birth. Uh, he introduced him in uh, how the wise men from afar came to worship him. He's introduced him by showing us his baptism and his temptation by the By the devil, and now in this last little section before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew's really introducing the way that Jesus would work throughout his ministry. And we looked um, last week at the beginning of this little section, and we left off at verse number 17, and we'll pick up on verse number 18 of Matthew 4 this morning. So I'm just going to get right in and start reading. You can follow along on the screen. I would I would invite you to turn in your own scripture if you have a copy. Matthew 4, beginning in verse number 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to bless his word as we read it and study it this morning. Father, thank you for this insight, this glimpse into the work of Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for doing these things. Thank you for coming. Uh, even your incarnation was a, a great sacrifice, as you as you stepped down, as it were, from the heavenly place. As you came, you humbled yourself, even to the point of being a man, Lord. But you are no ordinary man. We see in this place that you are the God-Man. Again, we see your marvelous works, but also we see in this passage your interest in people, but particularly disciples, followers. Uh, learners, God, I pray that we would catch a glimpse of what you're still doing, of what you're still doing, Lord. Bless us now as we read, study, and help to apply your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you this morning, if you've ever stopped for a while and considered the series of influences that led you to where you are in your life right now. When you think about what you're doing now, what you spend most of your life doing, whether it's your job or a hobby or perhaps you're retired, uh, what you've given your life to accomplish, when you look back and you see a long list of things that have happened in your life, uh, I ask you, have you ever thought about the series of influences that led you all the way to that point? You can probably trace uh, decisions back to influences. Sometimes those influences are our life experiences, uh, events, or even tragedies that happen. Sometimes they're very personal in nature, things that nobody else even really knows about, but you know that something happened, something took place, someone did something, someone said something, and it influenced you in a very particular way. More often than not, the influences in our life are people, Now, they can be positive or negative. Uh, In other words, they can influence us uh, toward what to do, or they can influence us toward what not to do. But we learn by those experiences and those influences, don't we? Influence can shape families. It can shape communities. It can shape regions, even the whole world. Uh, Have you ever purchased anything from Amazon? Um, That has revolutionized the way that millions of people think about shopping and merchandise. But think about that for a minute, because uh, Jeff Bezos wasn't the first person to ever think of selling something on the internet. He was influenced by somebody else's thought, no doubt. Take the Wright brothers. We think of them as the first to uh, make a, the, the first successful motor-powered aircraft, but they weren't the first to think of flying or even to think of that idea. Now, do you look at other people and notice little habits, uh, quirks, idiosyncrasies in their lives? Some some of you are really observant, and you can pick up on something that somebody always does, or something that is just characteristic. Uh, Why do people do those little things? Well, chances are they picked those up from somewhere else. Maybe it was a parent or a friend or a teacher. It wasn't original with them. We know that there's nothing new under the sun. All of life is really a series of influence. Now, why is this relevant to our study today? Well, when we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, we really are seeing the master plan of influence come to life. Now, God does whatever he pleases. That's understood in Scripture. He is sovereign. He's all-powerful, all-wise. And in his, in his wisdom, he plans, and he also executes plans. Think of a couple scriptures. Isaiah 25, verse 1 says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. Another one, Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, as we read Scripture, and as I read Scripture, I am as firm a believer in God's sovereignty over all things as any. Yet also, God clearly and wondrously works through means. That is, he uses people. Uh, He uses people's personalities, their choices, their experiences, their failures, their successes, and he uses those things within his sovereign wisdom. I, I can't explain to you the intricacies of how God's total sovereignty and mankind's freedom interact, other than to say that they're both shown explicitly and real in Scripture. And in the end, God's ways and his understanding are higher than ours. But one of the ways that this beautiful and masterful plan shows itself, where God's sovereignty and his power interact and work in the lives of individuals, is in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, being God, the sovereign God, Jesus had all power to simply come to earth and do as he pleased. He could have done exactly as many hoped, that is, to take over the world in a physical, earthly kingdom sense. Uh, He could have subdued earthly powers and set up a physical throne and inaugurate sort of the final form of the kingdom then and there, yet he didn't. Jesus, the most powerful ruler in existence, the only ruler who can actually be credited with creating the world that he rules over, works in ways that even we can draw from ways that, in many respects, can be emulated. And one of the most striking things, I think, about Jesus' work as he is on earth is, although he gained, at times, quite a following, we'll see one of those in our passage today, he really only focused on small groups of people. It seems that he had a a group that followed him most of the time that included both men and women. Women And he certainly chose and had the 12 who followed him uh, seemingly constantly. Even within those 12, there were three that are kind of like an inner circle. It seems like they even never left him. They were with him in the most crucial moments. And this is how Jesus accomplished most of his work, by teaching, by influence, by pouring into the lives of his followers. Now, we could talk through history and think of other ways in which that has happened. Uh, when you think about the way that much of the Western world is formed and our thought processes, you can think of four names uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Alexander the Great. That was a succession of teachers and learners, of, of teacher and disciple, that really shaped uh, a large way of how we in the Western world think and process things, some for good and maybe some not for good. But regardless, they used that series of influence, and it has influenced thousands of years of history. But the Greeks weren't the only ones to have influence like this. Uh, The culture in Jesus' day, and specifically one in the region of Galilee where he was living, uh, was one of learning and disciples. Young Jewish boys would follow kind of a pattern, a series of landmarks as they grew up. At age five, they were old enough to learn the scriptures, to start learning and memorizing the scriptures. At age 10, they would start learning and memorizing some of the oral traditions that were passed down from their ancestors. At age 13, they would be expected to to know and recite and keep commandments. You've heard of Bar Mitzvah or Bat Mitzvah. That means son or daughter of the commandments. Uh, At age 15, they would learn uh, the Talmud, which was sort of the rabbinic interpretations of Scripture. At age 18, they were considered old enough to be married. At age 20, they could pursue a full-time vocation. And finally, at age 30, they were considered old enough to have authority if they excelled. their learning now most young Jewish boys would be content to reach 18 and 20 and to get married and have a job and they would live a simple life with the things that they had learned up until that point at that point they would be well-versed in the scriptures and have much of it memorized and know the tradition of their ancestors but some exceptional students would want to go further if a student wanted to keep learning they would pursue the life of what was called the Talmudim. Now hang with me for a minute. You don't have to memorize all these terms. There won't be a test, but uh, hold on just for a second. The, the Talmudim were the followers of specific rabbis. Really, they were disciples. Now they would seek out this relationship, and they would apply, sort of like applying to a study at a, a college or a graduate school, they would apply to be a disciple or a follower of one of the famous rabbis. If accepted, they literally would follow or walk behind that rabbi in life. As the rabbi would repeat his teachings and his interpretations, as he would live his life based on those teachings, they would follow, they would observe, they would learn, they would memorize. They were seeking to be able to do more than just pass an academic test from the information they gained, they wanted to be like that teacher or that rabbi in every sense. Now, why all of that historical information? Well, that stream of influence in Jewish life is critical for us to understand because when the New Testament speaks about disciples, that's where the idea comes from. It's these Talmudim, these uh, these young Jewish men following and learning from a rabbi, becoming like him. Now Jesus, in this case, is the great rabbi. Of course, the the greatest one, far surpassing in every sense any other rabbi. He is the one with authority. He is the teacher. And as we'll see in this passage today, he conducts his ministry much different than the other rabbis did. For rather than people applying to be his follower or seeking after him, He went around and he chose his own disciples to follow him and to be with him. And sort of the big idea for today is this there have been many teachers and disciple makers in human history, but never one with the significance and the ultimacy of Jesus. He is worthy to be followed at all costs. We'll see a few things. First, Jesus' specific ministry. Uh, Jesus' general ministry, and at the end we'll have some thoughts about Jesus' continued ministry. Uh, Firstly, Jesus' specific ministry. Matthew gives us some really interesting insight into the way that Jesus uh, worked, the way he lived and conducted his ministry. As we see him calling his first disciples, uh, he does it in a way that was antithetical to the norm. And isn't that just like Jesus? Seemingly his whole life in ministry, he was breaking expectations. And that's good, because uh, sometimes when expectations are broken, we tend to get back into using our minds and thinking. Uh, I don't know about you, but if you're like me, uh, you may have a tendency to go into cruise control in your mind. If you think you have something figured out, whether it's your job, and you just don't even have to think about it anymore. Uh, A couple days a week when I'm driving across the state to work, sometimes I'll drive 20, 30, even the whole way, and I'll think for a minute. Can I remember one thing about my drive over the last hour? No, I can't remember a single thing. I don't know how I didn't run into another car, another person, uh, go off the road into the Attaquichi River. I have no idea. I'm just in literal and mental cruise control. That's probably not a good thing. But that's how we go through life, isn't it, sometimes? Fortunately, God's Word and the life of Jesus breaks the mold many times, and it causes us to get back into thinking. It wakes us up. As we think about this passage, the patterns, or the cruise control, was certainly shut off for Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In both cases of these two sets of brothers, we read that Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, uh, he was near his home base of Capernaum, and he saw these men. He compelled them to follow him, and the amazing thing is that they did. They followed him. They dropped literally everything right then and there, and they followed him. Now, if you cross reference with John chapter 1, we find out that Andrew, of these four, at least Andrew, is recorded as being a follower of John the Baptist before he was of Jesus. And he was made aware by John that Jesus was the Messiah. In that passage, we find that Andrew immediately went and told others about this amazing fact. His brother, Peter, being one of those. And perhaps these other fishermen, James and John, uh, no doubt they at least knew each other. Some think they may have even been related in some sense. But no doubt these other men probably had heard about Jesus. They may have known about Jesus. They may have met him before, but that doesn't negate the amazing result of Jesus' call to them, that they would literally drop everything to follow him. At best, they had a small introduction to who Jesus was. All four of these men were fishermen. Peter and Andrew were literally in the act of fishing when Jesus gave his call to them. And Jesus, being the master teacher, he used that situation to sort of form his call. While they were casting their nets, actively casting their nets, seeking to catch fish for their daily living, seeking to catch fish to sell at the markets, they were casting their nets, they were in cruise control, as it were, living their life, Jesus said, hey guys, why don't you follow me? I'll make you fishers of men. Now, if somebody came up to me and gave me a similar call and used some sort of, uh, you know, teaching, uh, teaching device like that and said, you know, say I'm, say I'm hammering a nail in and say, you know, why don't you stop ham- hammering nails and, you know, come use your hammer for something else. I'm not as creative as Jesus was. I'd probably say, you know what, I've got work to do. I'm, I'm working here. I have, I've got things to accomplish. Peter and Andrew could have easily said that, but when Jesus called them and said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men, they literally dropped their nets. And they followed him. They left their nets. They followed him. The story was similar with the other pair of brothers, James and John. These brothers were sons of Zebedee. They were also part of a a fishing business. Their father Zebedee was working with them Uh, They were mending their nets, cleaning them, preparing them, making them ready for business. Again, they were going about their normal life. This is what they did. I don't know if Jesus used the same call, but the response was the same. They left everything, literally, right there, including the boat, including their father. And they followed him. Now, I would have loved to have been a fly on the boat in that moment. Was was there a conversation here between the two boys and their father, Zebedee? Was there an argument? Uh, Was there any convincing that had to be done? I work in a family business as well. I know the importance of trust and relationships and the well-oiled machine that a family business can be. I can imagine that's how it was with Zebedee and his sons. And I also can imagine that even if Zebedee was okay with James and John making this decision to go follow this teacher, it was no easy thing. Here goes at least two of the strongest in his workforce. Here goes not just his workers, but his sons. Literally, they left the boat. They followed him. It would have been difficult, confusing perhaps even, but the call was worthy. The call to be a follower, to follow Jesus as a Talmudim or a disciple, it was worthy. The call to follow Jesus is a worthy call. But there's an interesting paradox here because the ones that were called We're not necessarily worthy of the call. Now, at least in cultural terms, when we think about this idea of a rabbi and his disciples or his talmudim, uh, we think of those young men who would follow. They would seek out this life. They would have been the A-plus students. Uh, They would have shown incredible aptitude. Uh, They were the top of their class. Most of those who applied to one of these discipleships did not get accepted. They were turned away. It was an elite method of learning. They were the best of the best. From what we know about these four men, they were not honor students. They were just regular people. Now, they were no doubt hard workers. No doubt they were good men, but they weren't academics. A little bit of insight that we get later in Scripture from the book of Acts, for chapter 4, uh, Peter and John here, and the the crowd they were speaking to, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. What does the end of the verse say? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? They were unlearned men. They were common men. They were workers. But they had a mark On their lives, didn't they? They had a mark on their lives that they had been with Jesus. That was the distinguishing characteristic. That was the linchpin, as it were. That was the difference maker in their lives, not their academic prowess, not their accomplishments, not even how many fish they were able to catch in the Sea of Galilee, but rather the mark was that they had been. With Jesus. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, where he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In the Gospel of Mark, we read this about Jesus calling his disciples. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. These men in this passage today, is long or uh, along with their eight other counterparts that we read about in Scripture, were called to the most critical path of learning that anyone can undergo, and that is the path of following Jesus, of being with him. As we continue to go through this book of Matthew, we'll find that following Jesus was and is a serious undertaking. Uh, It's an undertaking of obedience, of commitment, of perseverance, of trust, of submission. Following Jesus isn't the way for us to bring our best to the table as an offering for the work of the gospel. Rather, following Jesus is us, bringing nothing to the table. Those who are called are always unworthy. And this is so much different than the way of the world because usually the student hopes to take the teaching and make it better somehow. Usually the student hopes to take the ideas, the information, and take it further, take it another step, increase on it, expound on it, make it a little more clear, make it a little better. But when it comes to following Jesus, the master is already the pinnacle. Nothing higher can be achieved. When you're following Jesus, there is no reason to look for any better offer. No reason to wait out for a better contract. And perhaps that's why these four fishermen left their necessary and good tasks so willingly. Perhaps that's why they left their their comfort, their normal, their cruise control. They saw some element in Jesus' call that was, uh, in a sense, irresistible. There was no better offer. They dropped everything. They went from being fishers to being fishers of men. They realized that every earthly pursuit, even virtuous ones, had to take second place when following Jesus. Is in the running. A little bit about these four men. Peter, uh, he would be the outspoken one, as we'll read in Scripture. He would prove to be strong in many ways. He would prove to be strong in his confession that Jesus was the Christ, but Peter would also prove to be quite weak. He would prove to be weak in the fact that he denied Jesus three times before his death. He He would prove to be weak in that he rebuked Jesus at one point for speaking about his death. Peter was one of the inner circle of Jesus, along with James and John. Andrew was the brother of Peter. Much like brothers often are, Andrew seems to be the polar opposite. He's quiet, perhaps more humble. We don't know as much about Andrew. Perhaps he didn't open his mouth as much as his brother. But one thing that we see in the Gospels is that Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. And there's James and John. We don't know a lot about this James. Uh, He's never mentioned by himself in the Gospels. He was, however, close enough to Jesus to be with him in some of the most intimate moments. And then John. John refers to himself in his own gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But John really is the disciple of love. He uses that word over 80 times in his writing, and he would go on to write five of our New Testament books. Now, interestingly, all of all four of these, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. History tells us that John was the only one to actually die a natural death. The other three, along with the other apostles, were all brutally martyred. The call to follow Jesus for these men would lead to different levels of influence, different levels of both fame and infamy. It would lead to different paths of life and death but regardless, it was an all-encompassing call. These four fishermen specifically left everything, including job, including family, and gave everything up to and including their lives to follow Jesus. This is Jesus' specific ministry, uh, the the men that he poured his life into, but we also see a picture of Jesus' general ministry as we read on. Look at verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Uh, Matthew gives us kind of a bird's eye view of the general scope of Jesus' ministry. And there are two things that Jesus did over and over again. He, he taught and he performed miracles. He taught and he performed miracles. Now the scope of this work geographically was small. At least at first here, it was just in Galilee, just a small area. But his fame spread around. His influence spread around. Before long, people from Syria knew about this Jesus. This miraculous teacher who kept telling people the good news about the kingdom of God. People kept bringing their sick family members, their demon-possessed friends, their paralyzed children, whoever and whatever was brought to him. Jesus healed them. He kept proving what he said by what he did. He kept saying, the kingdom of God is here. The authority of God is here. The power of God is here. And then he would show it by healing someone. He built up a great crowd of people. Now as we read in the scriptures, we find that many of these came simply for the healings. Many came simply for the food. Many came simply for the benefit. And perhaps they missed the teaching, the more important part. But think of the influence. You know, it's the same in our day. Many uh, seek a a come-to-Jesus moment for some perceived earthly benefit. Uh, Many are looking for a quick fix a miracle without any sort of commitment. But just because there are some like that, listen, just because there are some like that does not mean that Jesus' work was not and is not successful. Jesus would continue this pattern of teaching and miracles throughout his ministry. In fact, next week we're going to start looking at probably the most significant portion of Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And right after that teaching, he came down off the mountain and performed a miracle. And people marveled. It says they marveled because Jesus taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, in the introduction, we mentioned the idea of authority in that culture. Uh, you were considered old enough to have authority when you were 30. Now, specifically in the Jewish context, authority meant that you could teach more than just other people's interpretations of the Scripture and the traditions. You could have your own interpretations. Now, Jesus certainly did have the authority to make interpretations of Scripture. After all, He is the author of Scripture. And Jesus' authority was seen in that sense. But He also had incredible authority. Authority to cast out demons, to to raise the dead, to command the wind and the seas. Jesus taught as one who had authority, and he lived as one who had authority. The ultimate authority. Lastly, though, a note about Jesus' continued ministry. Because at some point, Jesus' earthly ministry would come to an end. It came to an end at his death, burial, resurrection, and then his ascension. And physically, Jesus was gone from this earth. But after the four gospel records in our Bibles, we have the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a history book. It's a record. And really what it is, is the continuation of this ministry. The very work that Jesus not only set in place, but the work that he legitimized and actuated by his death and resurrection. His message continued on because that's the way he intended it. Jesus' primary work on earth was to save people, and He has done that. His atoning death and His vicarious resurrection as the victorious substitute for sinners, it has done that. He has made a way for rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, to follow Him. He calls you, dear one, to follow Him. To follow Him by faith. Believing that He is and will be a faithful Savior. He shows by His words and His works in the Scripture that He is who He says He is. He shows that He will come again to receive His followers. That where He is, we might be also. He will one day be seen and recognized as Lord of all. Yet, graciously, He beckons you to come now to follow Him, to drop everything, the the cares, the anxieties of life, to follow Him. As Matt read earlier in another place in Matthew, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Beloved, today... Jesus is still working, making disciples and also disciple-makers. Think of his words before his ascension. We looked at these last week. We look at them here again. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Yes, Jesus' work is continuing, making disciples and disciple-makers. And that leads us to ask two questions very simply by way of application. Firstly, are you a disciple? Are you a follower of Jesus? Has he called you and you have heeded that call? It may be countercultural. Yes, it may even be unpopular. It may even seem earthly ignorant, but it is heavenly wise. Have you come to Jesus and to see him as the king? Have you come to see him as the Lord? He is Lord, whether you see him as that. Or not? He is Lord. Do you see Him as such? Do you follow Him? Do you trust Him? As one man speaking to another, I would implore you, follow Christ. As one human being speaking to another, I would beg you, as the Scriptures do, to follow Christ. None of us are worthy of the call but He is worthy of the following. None of us are righteous or pure or holy, but He is and He offers that righteousness, that purity, His righteousness for those who will follow Him. Following Jesus may have temporary negative implications, but it is of eternal consequence. Only in Him is found life, everlasting life. Only in Him is found peace, eternal peace. Only in Him is found security beyond our earthly years. Only He is worthy and only He has all authority. Only He has the significance and the ultimacy that is worthy to be followed at all costs. Are you a disciple? But secondly, and I ask us this question today, Ira Baptist Church, are we disciple makers? We are called to make disciples from all nations, to teach them whatever Jesus has taught, to pass on this living truth and a stream of influence. Jesus has not designed to take Uh, He's not designed the church, rather, to take the world by storm, but rather by teaching. He's not designed his body to infiltrate by force or warfare, but rather by multiplication. He has called his followers to spread his good news to each person that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, to proclaim what he has proclaimed, That the kingdom of God has drawn near in the person of Jesus Christ. And that demands a response. I wanna circle back, however, to one final thing, one final point of application. Because I believe that most of us in this room, as far as I uh, have any awareness, have trusted Christ. You have followed him, but there is a critical piece. There's a critical piece of information. Back in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, we read it already, but he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. And he sent them out to preach. What did Jesus first appoint his disciples to do? To be with him. What were the distinguishing marks on Peter and John's life in the book of Acts. Not their seminary degree or their life's accomplishment, but it was that they had been with Jesus. The call to follow Jesus can be described in many ways, but it is firstly and primarily a call to be with Him. It's a call that will result in us being with Him eternally, but it's a call that demands and yearns for us to be with Him now. With Him in His teaching. With Him in His words. With Him in our prayer, in our devotion. With Him in our thinking, in our doing. It's a call to be with Him. May the world see us as different Not because we're extraordinary, but because we're followers. Because we're disciples of the only one worth following. May they see a mark on our lives, not because we're extraordinary, but because we've been with Jesus.